You are listening to Superman Forever Radio, Episode 8. Welcome to Superman Forever Radio, a weekly podcast devoted to the last son of Krypton in print, screen, and more. I am once again your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder, and I am very sorry for this episode being late. Uh, I, I mean, I, I mentioned it last week, but I kind of had to be realistic with what was happening in the in the real world. My sister was graduating with her master's, and I had Christmas events to deal with, and my work schedule was thrown out of whack to kind of compensate for that. So if I, you know, I'm, I'm being realistic. The show is just me. So inevitably something is going to come up at some point or another to cause problems with the schedule. I'm sure episodes will be late, but my goal is to reduce that from happening as much as I possibly can. That's my, my goal and keep it on a weekly basis. And, uh, but you know, when that happens, you can still listen to all the other great Superman podcasts on the Superman podcast network at the fortress of com slash Superman podcast network. So right there is a backup plan. And also remember that Sunday, January 2nd, there will be no episode, uh, which will happen uh, anytime. There are five Sundays in a month to kind of help me stay a few episodes ahead and give me a breather. Um, every, sh- every episode of the show takes about six hours from start to finish, uh, between working on the reviews, collecting the news, researching the topics, and recording, editing, uploading, and posting. So any chance I get, I'm going to try and keep at least the, you know, the reviews and topic sections of the show in the can as far as advanced as possible. So I'm kind of given those, those openings. And uh, when I looked at 2011, I only counted four total skips, including the one on January. Uh, the other three are in May, July, and October. It'll be at the beginning of those months. So... That'll be a nice place to take a breather, especially in July. Uh, July will be following the uh, Metropolis Superman celebration. And that will be one of the few episodes where the reviews and will kind of take a break because I'm going to want to devote the whole episode to that experience. And I am planning on going for all four days. I am going to be booking my room at the end of uh, at the end of the month here. And I'll be I am very excited about this year. Very excited. Last year was a blast. And this year, um, hopefully everything stays uh, at the steady uh, rate it's going financially and work-wise. And I won't have to cut my trip short like last year. But I am highly looking forward to it. I love going to Metropolis. In fact, uh, the first time I ever went was October of 09 for my birthday. And my wife and I took our dog Lucy Lane up there. And it's about a six-hour drive from where I live in Missouri to Metropolis, and we just had a great time. I listened to uh, From Crisis to Crisis on, on the trip. So, you know, Jeffrey Taylor and Michael Bailey kind of became like friends to me going on this Superman trip and listening to them review the review the uh, old issues. But uh, I'm going off uh, off subject here. But, I uh, you know, I basically have topics set up for every episode this year in 2011. So there's not a chance of running out of things to talk about. Uh, speaking of which, after the break, I do plan on doing an animation month where I'm going to begin with the Fleischer cartoons and kind of go through Superman the Animated Series. 
And I'm really excited about that because I love the Fleischer Superman cartoons. And after we do kind of an overall coverage of them, I may circle back down the road and just do look at them one by one in some way, shape or form, whether it be on the blog or on the show here. So uh, let me know what you think about that. And before we really kick off this episode, I do have one note. I want to introduce a new phrase into the lexicon for Superman Forever and uh, kind of across Superman podcasts. Um, We started reviewing the books following Infinite Crisis a few episodes ago, and I've been using the term post-Infinite Crisis, but I think a more accurate term would be the New Earth Era. Uh, The term Modern Era, I don't really want to apply because it usually just refers to whatever books are currently on the stands. And for me, and as far as the reviews on the podcast go, um, kind of to define the eras, uh, the Golden Age, which would be around 1938 to 1956 or 58 in there, uh, that would be also call it the Mort Weisinger era, or pardon me, not the Mort Weisinger, just the Golden Age. The Mort Weisinger era, the Silver Age, would actually run from about 1958 uh, up to about 1970 to 71 when Julius Schwartz came in which is where Charlie Niemeyer's Superman in the Bronze Age is kind of covering from. And that would take us up to 1986, where we saw the only really true hard reboot in Superman's history with the Burn era. Uh, But I think it's appropriate, not necessarily as an official industry term, but for our purposes to call this the Steel Age, or the From Crisis to Crisis era, or even the Burn era. But uh, Steel Age is kind of fitting because it did begin with the Man of Steel. And that drops us into 2006, Uh, with the current era and that's where the new earth era begins that's kind of what we're going to be covering for the next uh, I don't know how many episodes it'll be over a year and a half or so Uh, maybe more because I'm kind of looking at a logistical nightmare when we get to new Krypton as far as time so we may split that up a little bit differently eventually though we will catch up to the books that are that will be coming out and the show will become current and I'm not sure exactly how we will work that, but uh, we still got a ways. Uh, a few other logistical nightmares. Um, and I wanted to, that brings up a good note. I'm going to save the Supergirl reviews until we get to New Krypton when it becomes necessary because in her book, Kara is kind of doing her own thing um, as far as space. You know, right now we have three books with Superman, Action Comics, and Superman, Batman. And that's taking up plenty of room. As far as time and as far as, you know, storage space on the server. So uh, it actually inspired me, you know, thinking about this, making this decision. I don't know that there's any Supergirl podcasts like this out there. Uh, you have the pendant production Supergirl Last Daughter of Krypton, which is more of a production rather than the, the kind of review and uh, information podcast that, you know, the uh, you know a lot of us do. So... I'm kind of putting out a challenge that somebody may need to start a Supergirl podcast. Uh, Let me know what you think on that. You can just drop me an email if you want. And uh, anyway, before I get off on another tangent, because it's already going to be a long episode, uh, let's, uh, let's get this show going. And so let's take a look at the happenings around Metropolis. We're sitting on top of the story of the century here. Uh, To begin with, you know, if you're traveling to Cleveland by plane this holiday season, you may want to check out the uh, food court where the Superman-themed Christmas tree is uh, on display at the Cleveland Hopkins International Airport. Now, it is only available to those who have boarding passes because it's behind secure areas. So, hopefully you're traveling that way. And that was uh, donated by the Siegel & Schuster's uh, Society. And Kevin Spacey has recently hinted that he might want to be interested in maybe playing Lex Luthor again. 
Now, I think myself and most of fandom are kind of hoping that Lex has either a reduced role or no role in the new movie, but honestly, did Kevin Spacey really do that bad of a job in the second half of the movie? Yeah, he was over the top, but then he brought out a darkness that was uh, kind of haunting, and one of the better features of of Superman Returns. And uh, speaking of Superman returning, uh, you know, we were talking about... A lot of fans are talking about cast members coming back to Smallville for the final season, like Michael Rosenbaum, uh, Kristen Kruk, you know, and a lot of people wondering when Chloe's going to be back. For the answer for the Chloe question, she'll be back on the next episode, Collateral, which should be out January 28th. And we will be looking a little bit into Smallville uh, right around that time, kind of the season so far. I did a quick overview of an episode, really want to do a better job and kind of cover the whole season. But uh, one cast member that nobody seems to care about was Pete Ross, which bothered me for a while because Pete really got the shaft on the show when he was such an important character in the comic books, not just, you know, Superman, but Superboy comics. It was his best friend, one of the only people who kind of found out his secret by accident and even kept it from Clark himself for a while. So what happened to Sam Jones, the third who uh, left Smallville? Well, he was guilty of drug trafficking. He was uh, caught in a drug ring selling Oxycontin or, and let me relish this phrase because I may never, ever get to use it on this podcast again, Oxycontin, also known as hillbilly heroin. Hillbilly heroin. I just want one more time just to make sure I get it out. So he has been, uh, yeah, he is going to uh, face those charges. He's now a member of a drug ring, and that's what happens when you get unfairly uh, shafted on Smallville. You become a drug dealer. So, uh, well, uh, Jensen Eccles seems to have worked out fine on Supernatural, but at the same time, whatever happened to uh, the guy that played Whitney, whatever happened to Eric Johnson? He did that Flash Gordon thing, and then, uh, poof, gone. Next thing you know, he may be dealing heroin, or hillbilly heroin. I know, I had to slip it in one more time. Um, Anyway, new Superman writer Chris Robertson says Superman's his dream job. Uh, He talked briefly about how Superman was one of his favorite comic book characters from when he was six years old, and... He doesn't know whether or not he's going to continue once he finishes writing the rest of J. Michael Straczynski's Grounded arc. Can I note something here? Because I'm really annoyed by this. Robertson looks like he's a good guy. He's really into this. It's his dream job. And if you look at the solicitations over at DCComics.com, even though Straczynski really just kind of outlined the plot, Straczynski is still getting top billing. You don't get top billing unless you script it or there's something special. And that just irritates me because DC is milking that two ways. They're pulling this guy, pulling this guy off of a monthly book to do another graphic novel, which is a quick rush for uh, money. That's all it is. And I really hate when characters really get exploited for money and nothing else. I, fans will pay for a good story. But not only did they pull Straczynski off of this to go do Earth 2 sequel, kind of throwing the uh, monthly books into turmoil... This guy who steps in, who's really passionate about it, gets second billing when he's doing now the lion's share of the work. So they're just milking the Straczynski name. Thank you, DC. Uh, But basically he quoted, he was quoted, Robertson was quoted, Superman's been my favorite character since I was six years old. And I have more comics featuring Superman than any single other single character. And he's finally, at the end, you know, he states, I view the job of writing the flagship Superman, a title as a sacred trust. A sacred trust that shouldn't be broken by running off to write a graphic novel. But I'm getting off my high horse. Uh, Before I uh, wrap this section of the show up, I want to let you know, uh, if you're heading to the comic shops this Wednesday, December 2nd, 2010, 
Keep in mind that this will be the last regular Wednesday before about two weeks of shipping delays. When we start getting our books on Thursdays, do the holidays. So relish this because it'll be gone for about two weeks. And then, you know, we will get back to normal for a while. But uh, the Superman books on the stands will be DC Comics Presents Superman number three, which will reprint Superman volume two, number 177 through 178 and number 181 through 182 which will be about 96 pages for $7.99, which is not a bad deal at all. Also on stands, uh, just sort of an honorable, honorable mention, is DC Universe Legacies number 8 of 10, which revisits the Reign of the Superman era as well as the Nightfall era. Uh, Dan Jurgens and Jerry Orway provide art to a Lynn Wayne story, which really just kind of spells quality all the way around. I'm kind of psyched about this, and I have been following this, this miniseries. It's pretty good. Overall, um, I've been enjoying the backup stories a lot more, ironically. But overall, it's a good buy. Uh, it's at 40 pages at uh, $3.99. I actually recommend this. And uh, finally this week, Superman Batman number 75, 79 hits, which returns us to the universe of DC 1 million, as written by Chris Robertson. Art by Jesus Marino and covered by Fiona Staples. Uh, this is a 32-page issue for $2.99. So go out and check that up. And before we jump into our reviews this week, let's do a brand new top five. This week's top five from the home offices in Cleveland, Ohio, are the top five Metallo upgrades. Sort of for the ultimate 21st century cyborg. These are some of the newer essential items. At number five, a serious satellite radio receiver is built right into that chest plate. Number four, Metallo now has an internal Amazon Kindle to download books from WhisperNet. Uh, number three, a, a hacked Xbox Connect for a secondary career entertaining at frat parties. Number two, a DJ sound system and turntables. Just imagine how distracted Superman would be when Metallo drops a hardcore beat. And the number one Metallo upgrade for the 21st century, built-in daiquiri dispenser. Okay, so now we're into July of 2006 in our reviews, which we're going to kick off with Superman number 652, and this is Up, Up, and Away, Part 5 of 8, Speeding Bullet, written by Kurt Busiek and Jeff Johns, with art by Pete Woods, colorist Brad Anderson, letters by Rob Lay, associate editor Nachi Castro, and edited by Matt Idelson. And we open the issue with Clark looking up at a tall building in the middle of the night, having survived getting hit by a train at the end of Action Comics 838. Now Clark, in an effort to follow up on the more powerful than a locomotive feat, attempts to leap the tall building in a single bound, which fails horribly. He barely makes it to the top before practically skidding across the roof, hitting a radio tower, crashing through a railing, and then hitting the building on the other side of the building he was leaping. And Clark lands on the street below, creating a crater, moaning that he is a little out of practice. And I do want to note here on pages 1 through 4, Clark is wearing a Planet Krypton shirt, which is the superhero-themed restaurant that was first introduced in Kingdom Come. And Pete Woods has some great facial expressions, which kind of perfectly convey the reactions to the situations, from happy, excited face at the launch, then fear as he stumbles across the roof, and finally just this pained understanding of his limitations. And the panels actually have different colors. Uh... 
plain white, or not the panels, I apologize, the captions. They have multiple colors, plain white for Clark's internal monologue, and then we see a red to yellow fade color for the story's announcement, and finally, after four issues, we see Superman's name return to the captions. So we are kind of heading back to familiar territory. And one more thing, the wham sound effect as Clark lands is classic. Just a great design, even though the scene actually has a serious undercurrent. It's kind of kept lighthearted by the the goofy sound effects. So I'm happy to see that because it's good that they're balancing out humor and the seriousness. Uh, Moving on the next morning at Sullivan Place, Clark is making tea and struggling to figure out how he's going to tell Lois that his powers are returning. Luckily, it's pretty much figured out for him when Lois walks into the room to find Clark leaning on the piping hot stove burner. And Clark admits, yeah, they're coming back. Lois asks how it happened, maybe solar flares or exposure to radon, but Clark believes that maybe he just let his powers come back. And Lois tells him to stop talking. Walks silently into the bedroom with a confused and slightly scared Clark following her. And Lois pulls out Clark's Superman costume from the closet and just tells him, go get him. And Clark suits up with Lois telling him, you know, to do that thing with his hair. She likes that, which is a nice touch. Uh, With his powers only slightly returned, Superman leaps back into action. With Clark on his way to an emergency, Lois takes the moment to to tell Clark, who can hear via his super hearing, that Clark is like a fireman. And she knew who he was when she married him, and she states she's always going to be behind him all the way. And this is what makes Lois awesome. Just when Clark expected her to react negatively to his powers returning, she totally blows his mind by giving him 110% of support. And uh, while seeing Superman suit up was cool, this scene belonged to Lois all the way. And moving on, uh, at the Daily Planet, the Puzzler attacks, a.k.a. Valerie Van Haften, a.k.a. the Puzzler, who can contort the various pieces of her body like puzzle pieces, retaining full control even when they aren't attached. Uh, This version of the Puzzler actually first appeared in Superman Volume 2, number 187, as a part of the group of villains gathered by Manchester Black. Uh, Not pleased by Neutron and Radeon's failure to kill Clark Kent, Intergang has sent somebody slightly more subtle to deal with this issue. Unfortunately, Superman crashes crashes through the newsroom window, having misjudged the landing, to the amazement of the the Daily Planet staff. Now, seeing her chance to publicly battle Superman with her upgraded pieces, which are now indestructible, uh, the puzzler leaps at this chance. As Perry orders the staff into action, Jimmy can just stand there and smile because his pal is back. Uh, Superman has a grand return cast against this sunlit backdrop in the in the panel there where he's misjudging the landing. Uh, it really feels like Superman 2. I mean, he should basically just be saying, General Care to step outside. And uh, it's good to see Jimmy Olsen looking happy again after four issues of Down in the Dumps Jimmy. So I'm not quite as worried about him as I could have been. And Superman overtakes the puzzler pretty quickly by trapping her face in a trash can and the rest of her in his cape so the pieces can't, you know, get enough speed to hurt him or reconnect themselves. And the crowd reacts to Superman's return with stunned disbelief. And Superman has to admit he's rusty at this himself. And he notes a buzzing in his brain. Not like that's going to be important in the next issue. And Pete Woods does a fantastic job with the puzzler's pieces, I should note. Uh, he keeps them bound to a loose pattern so you can show the movement and the relations you know, to each other as a body. 
Now, this issue takes a moment to check in with Lex Luthor and the Toy Man, deep in the lair where Luthor is none too happy to hear about the return of his nemesis. He cranks his kryptonite cannon up to 11 to get the Kryptonian artifact to the surface. Meanwhile, Superman is back on patrol, leaping through the air since his flight powers haven't fully returned. When he gets nailed by, I hail a gunfire, zapped with an electrical bolt, slapped with a sonic screen, covered with a blob of goo, and punched by multiple fists bringing him down. And Superman comes face to face with Livewire, Silver Banshee, Bloodsport, and Hellgramite. Or Hellgramite, I'm not sure how to pronounce that properly, but I say Hellgramite and that's how we're sticking to it. So, we know Riot, oh, pardon me, I forgot to mention Riot's there too, who we know as uh, Frederick von Frankenstein, a descendant of the Frankenstein family, who is able to duplicate himself, kind of like a Jamie Madrox, and stick to walls. Kind of like Spider-Man. He has the ability to uh, do all this. He first appeared in Superman the Man of Steel number 61. The original Bloodsport, Robert Dubois, first appeared in Superman Volume 2, number 4, and has the ability to teleport sophisticated weapons into his hands by way of a high-tech device in alternate dimension. Note that the second Bloodsport was ironically a fanatical racist. Both of these Bloodsports were killed in prison, while the third, that appears here, who's kind of assumed to be the roommate of Robert Dubois, his identity has not yet been known, and he shares the exact abilities of the previous incarnations. Hellgram and Hellgramite, however you want to say it, was originally Roderick Rose who developed a process to transform himself into a grasshopper type of creature. And he first appeared in Action Comics number 673. Livewire first appeared in Superman the Anim- Animated Series, before proving so popular that she was introduced in- into the comics with Action Comics 835, Literally one issue shy of the end of the post-crisis era. And here, uh, her origin remains exactly the same as the animated version. She was a shock jock named Leslie Wells, whose show was dedicated to bashing Superman before she became living electricity. And she can control electricity and use it to create electromagnetic fields. Silver Banshee first appeared in Action Comics 595 and has the ability to emit a wall, a whale, who that can kill every anybody within range as long as she knew their true names. And she also has some strength and speed and endurance. And the group is looking to collect on the bounty Intergang has put on Clark Kent's head, but Superman's bounty is a lot higher. So they just have a brand new target as Jimmy chases the story in the cab. The fight begins. Now, page 23 is a good sequence, uh, teasing the villains, you know, with Superman getting hit by the bullets, with the electricity, teases them, doesn't show too much of them, and the individual sound effects and color schemes really sound out. So this was really good storytelling. And it also notes that Superman can leap one-eighth of a mile, which holds really true to the Golden Age power level of Superman. But I am disappointed that the full reveal of Superman's foes didn't get a splash page, it really just got a fairly large panel at the top of the page. Presentation, you know, could have been better. But... Though, there's story t- tight storytelling to be done here, so fine. And uh, anyway, moving on, Perry is on the phone with Jimmy, admitting that this, yes, this is a big story, but reminds Jimmy not to get killed getting the story. In Outlook Pike Park, the fight proceeds with Superman outgunned, and 
trying to even the odds, Superman takes Helgrimmit over the side of the dam, reasoning that he can't fly, but he can withstand the drop. And as he drops down the side of the dam, Superman notes there is a tingling in his brain, which certainly won't become important in the next issue. And Livewire and Silver Banshee follow Superman and Helgrimmit's plummet, Livewire gets shorted out by the waterfalls. Silver Banshee takes an off-panel elbow to the larynx. And Hellgrammit is just out of commission from the fall. And guess what? Superman can fly a little. He's still getting used to it, but hey, he's, he's airbound. Meanwhile, topside, Jimmy shows up to the park just in time for Bloodsport and Riot to take notice of him. And Bloodsport fires off a shot at Jimmy, which Superman rushes to block, narrowly, narrowly catching the bullet only inches from Jimmy's head. And the issue ends with Superman in a fighting stance, ready to finish finish off Bloodsport and Riot, noting a buzzing in his brain, which certainly, absolutely, will not become important in the next issue. And, you know, this issue overall definitely picked up the pace. The only real downside was that the battles were too brief, which kind of gets rectified uh, momentarily as we move on to uh, Action Comics. But uh, with as many villains that were packed into this issue and Superman's powers coming back, I would have liked a little bit more punches thrown and spread across the two the two issues. Uh, Perry telling Olsen not to get himself killed uh, kind of shows that you know he's still more he's not he's more than a one note cigar chopping bulldog, and the burn era really spent a lot of time uh, building a foundation, showing a lot many facets in Perry's character, and it's. Way too easy to stereotype Perry White. And Jackie Cooper's performance in the Superman first Superman movie displays this. Not necessarily in a bad way, given that context. And really kind of saw redemption in Superman 2 in the great scene where he stands, stood up to General Zod. And, you know, in the post-crisis, writers really did craft those great backstories for Perry. And I'm kind of happy to see he wasn't completely shortchanged, even if it's one line. You still get the idea that's good storytelling. That's a, that's good on Jeff Johns for doing it with one line. And uh, Johns Abusic, you know, they definitely have a good handle on Lois. She really delivered the defining speech of the New Earth era here. And she's supportive of our hero without knocking herself down to submissive housewife status, kind of like in the Silver Age. And in fact, John's Superman himself, he's well balanced altogether. Uh, Jimmy comes off, you know, really intelligent without losing his goofiness. But he isn't relegated to plucky comic relief yet. And uh, Clark, you know, has that balance of boyish innocence and sharp intelligence that I like uh, with a very, very little backwoods farm boy. I mean, he should always hold that wonderment in everything, especially given that in some ways he's an outsider looking in. But he should never come off as an idiot or simple. And some writers do end up doing that. I'm looking at you, Frank Miller. Don't know why that came out. Don't worry. <laughs> um, but uh, he should not, you know, thankfully we don't get to see a lot of the idiot here. You do get a nice balance where it shows, yes, I'm in here. I am using my brain, but I choose to see the good in things. And beyond trying to leap over the, the building, Clark really shows his ingenuity by trapping the puzzler and taking out three villains in a single well-planned swoop. And when reviewing these issues, you know, it's hard to kind of get myself back to the context that I was in when I read them right off the stands. And really to look back at that, it's kind of neat and kind of gave me a better outlook on these issues. You know, when these came out in 2006, I had just been married 
Uh, Superman Returns was on its way in a couple of months, and I was kind of first coming back to comics about a year, after about a year off. Um, so once I got myself back into that 2006 mindset, I really started to remember why I enjoyed these so much. And it was it was a year when DC was doing some exciting things with their books, and Marvel was starting to. It just that turned out to be Civil War for Marvel. I don't want to talk about that. And sure, things are going to get really weird really quick right after this storyline. But as for Up, Up, and Away, you know, we're looking at some great stuff. However, it isn't A-game stuff. It's very strong B-game. Which, you know, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. I'll take a B-game story over anything less. So the story, you know, kind of flashes back and forth a little too much. And parts of it kind of seem out of sequence. Which, uh, speaking about a sequence... That is a nice segue to Action Comics 839 by the almost exact same creative team. Uh, Pete Woods, who is not in the, doing the art in this issue, is replaced by Rinaldo Guedes. And this is Up, Up, and Away Part 6. This looks like a job. And before we get back into the story that was started with Superman 652, we're kind of treated to a flashback of Superman and Earth 2 Superman fighting Superboy Prime or Superman Prime, depending on who you ask back in Infinite Crisis. And Superman gets the news that his powers would not return before a single panel devoted to his is devoted to his lo, uh, reunion with Lois. Sorry about that. Following Infinite Crisis. And this is such a weird place to put this flashback, especially since we laugh last left the last issue ended on a really good cliffhanger. Uh, plus we only got a single panel of the Lois and Clark reunion. I mean, even after New Krypton, we got more than that, and this really should have been more emotional. But, you know, on a good note, the colors here are really good. Uh, there's thick reds for the battle, and a nice sepia tone for Metropolis at sunset when Superman's kind of walking to reunite with Lois. And remember when I stated that the action was a bit short in Superman 652? These pages do make up for it, but I still would have liked it split over the issues. Uh, Bloodsport fires off a few rounds and Riot straight rushes at Superman who can't really hit him without creating more duplicates. But suddenly Clark's brain is overwhelmed with memories and sensations. Just a ton of data. Remember when I said that buzzing surely wouldn't pay off? Okay, now it is. Hint, hint. Uh, this allows the recovered Silver Banshee a single shot which does take Superman down for a moment. And the crowd and Jimmy Olsen just stand shocked. Uh, Livewire also re-enters the fight, but Superman managed to concentrate long enough to knock Bloodsport out, not before a single shot is fired out of the energy rifle, hitting Silver Banshee into Livewire. And the shock takes Banshee out and releases enough magic to subdue Livewire, leaving Riot, which Superman makes quick work of by creating a vortex, flying around him really fast at super speed just to take the air out of his lungs. And Superman is applauded by the crowd as he hears this uh, special crimes unit coming with the proper restraining equipment. And Superman has a strange look and flies off without saying a word. Now, I do want to note that Guedes adds a metallic sheen to Superman's symbol that I just dig. And it isn't as three-dimensional as Kurt, uh, Adam Kubert's version will be in Last Sun, which kind of aped Superman Returns. And I like this better. It seems to work here. Uh, just slightly raised and metallic. And page four in specific just looks like a perfect pinup. But Guedes is a little choppy with Superman's facial structure. Now he looks like he is gaining and losing weight between the panels. 
Um, it is cool to see Superman's brain activity really begin to go off the charts. I mean, knocking Bloodsport down at the right time and angle to take out Banshee and Livewire. That's awesome. I, I like that Superman's brain is really becoming a superpower in itself, and we'll be seeing more on that later. Um, moving on, Clark is telling Lois about his boosted brain activity and how back at the planet and how he could hear the pulses of everybody around him in Outlook Park. And suddenly he, uh, Perry yells out the basically the speech we would kind of see in Superman Returns. Uh, Superman's back. We need to cover him every way we can. So Perry's back in news mode. And Clark is hearing that the SCU, and he's noting that even he can hear the captain's voice from far away. Apparently, you know, he even took a class with him in college. Uh, that's that boosted brain activity. And Clark tells Perry he just doesn't feel well. Runs out of the stairwell, and Perry runs after him, but finds the stairwell empty while Lois is looking dumbfounded at her notebook, which will become important in just a few pages. Uh, Superman... Uh, kind of gets out and is floating above Metropolis, which looks spectacular. And he's just trying to get his bearings with his new powers. And, I mean, he's been without them for a year, just really needs to readjust to them. Focusing and filtering out the noises. And the larger panel on page 17, that Metropolis scene with this small Superman at the very center of a huge Metropolis backdrop is great. It gives the some great perspective on what Superman's range, you know, of, of his perspective is. So it's... Uh, while, you know, Guedes is very choppy with the facial structure, he gives us scenes like this, which is just good storytelling. And it's I weird that I never thought about this, but Superman notes that he can hear Wi-Fi zones. And uh, I assume he could before, but I can never remember that ever being acknowledged. And I just thought that was an interesting aspect. Nice thought-provoking. How much can Superman really hear? And what can he and can't he see? But Superman heads back down to street level looking for this noise that kind of drove him running out of the newsroom. And he hopes Lois got the note that he scribbled at super speed on the way out. Which, uh, just as Lois and Jimmy hit the street, we find out Lois did get the note which reads, Something big happening. Harmonics get out on street. And something certainly does happen. A large crystal spire erupts through the street. Actually, many of them. And this sends people running and just, you know, chaos erupts on the streets of Metropolis. You'd think they'd be used to it by now. Uh, the crystals are growing huge, like hitting skyscraper tops, huge. And Superman managed to save a woman from falling to her death out of a hole ripped through her office building. And Superman narrates that he heard something in the deep underground but couldn't place it. He does recognize the crystal as Kryptonium. And the scope of this scene is huge. Buildings getting demolished. This was a huge build-up, you know, in the last few issues with a nice payoff. And we haven't even gotten started yet. Um, Lois is back on the street covering the bedlam. And she's communicating with Perry who mentions that they need Clark. But poor Lois is stuck making excuses again while Clark overhears from above. Uh, while rescuing a bus from being destroyed. And you know he really feels bad for Lois. But admits he wouldn't trade being Superman for anything. And you know the idea that Lois now has to lie for Clark is really kind of a sad aspect of the secret identity. I mean, Clark lying is bad enough. Even though it's a lie, it, you know, it's for a worthwhile cause. It does protect people. And before Lois and Clark were married and the secret was on the table, Clark seemed a little bit more heroic for sacrificing his happiness with the woman he loves in order to maintain the secret identity. But now he's forced to make her an accomplice to the lie. It's just one of those no-win scenarios when 
even though he is doing it for the good reasons, it's still a lie. But we're not here to discuss the the you know, morality of secret identities. Instead, we're going to switch over to Lex in his underground lair, explaining to Toy Man that the Kryptonian artifact that they've been tracking and battling is is awakened, hence the infinitely reprogrammable crystalline form. And it is actually ripping through his lab, and Lex hijacks the ship and tells Toy Man he's done, and tells also adds that Toy Man's creator, Winslow Shot, the original Toy Man, will be delivered to the address of the robot's choice. He adds that the Toy Man robot may not want to hang around Metropolis, as it won't be around much longer. And where, you know, Guedes fails a little bit with Superman's face, Lex's facial expressions through this whole speak sequence are spot on. He looks a little like Gene Hackman as well, so I'm kind of loving that. And I'm not entirely clear at this point whether the Toy Man robot was working with Luthor because uh, Shot was being held hostage or if the robot wants revenge on shot for some reason, maybe it's sentient. Um, mainly the line uh, that Lex says to deal with as you see fit kind of leads me to believe that shot was in for some trouble, but I lost, I really lost track of toy man for a while after the cat grant incident at spotty. I don't have a good memory and I'm not sure exactly where to look. So, and we will see a little bit more on this uh, down the line about a year, maybe a little bit more. And uh, as Superman continues to rescue the citizens of Metropolis, the crystals begin to take shape. And Superman realizes that he is flying toward a giant Kryptonian crystal ship. And he deduces that, yes, he is facing Lex Luthor, and that is where it ends. Now, I remember reading this issue new, wondering if Superman Returns would have this awesome idea of Lex making the ship. I mean, after all, the trailer clearly showed Lex Luthor with Kryptonian crystals and even mentioned being able to make advanced weapons. But alas, only an island meant a Superman in that movie. But this issue stepped up the game a lot. Uh, where we had five issues of build-up, this one issue blew them away with just a ton of action. A fully charged and upgraded Superman and Lex Luthor preparing to meet his foe on a physical battlefield. I mean, we're suddenly seeing the crap hit the fan all at once. And I have to admit, I got excited all over again when rereading this issue. While things may have felt a bit rushed, it needed to pick up the pace again. So overall, I'm going to give Superman 652 three S-Shields out of five, and Action Comics gets four S-Shields out of five. Both suffer from artists who kind of have blurry line work, but Guedes actually adds something to Superman with that metallic symbol, despite the changing facial structure. And we will wrap up the story of Up, Up, and Away next week, uh, which kind of leaves us... Uh, with a new storyline or storylines kicking off in 2011. And I'm just going to warn you right here. Once we get past this up, up and away, we're going to go into a period uh, that very quickly gets very weird uh, in terms of story, in terms of schedule. And uh, there are some points where I'm like, I really want to cheat uh, and try to do these out of sequence just so you get the whole story. But the reason I'm not going to do that is because I want to do it in sequence uh, just to kind of keep the continuity going for the show. And also, you know what? If you were reading these on the shelves at that time, you were kind of suffering from some of the scheduling mishaps that we're going to be seeing. But uh, luckily, I'm going to be adding some notes in and kind of explaining why we're seeing some of these weird gaps. And uh, a lot of it comes down to two words, Adam Kubert. 
But uh, before I run way too long, let's go ahead and take another look back into the 1930s and the story of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And the story repeats itself. A damsel held by, held by a maniacal villain. A major metropolitan, a metropolitan city held in the clutch of terror. And the hero flies to the rescue, a familiar red cape flapping sharply in the wind. With feats of strength and wonder, the villain is defeated. And the damsel is rescued. And it's just a familiar scenario ingrained in our collective pop culture subconscious. Um, when we last left our heroes, Jerry Siegel had just concocted the third version of Superman after a sleepless night and would rush to his artist, Joe Schuster, and together history would be made. But this is 1934. Where does a concept like superheroes come from? I mean, now we live in a day and age where a wide and varied world of comic book heroes is familiar to us. After all, even like semi-obscure superheroes are becoming common fodder for summer blockbuster movies. And almost everybody has a favorite superhero, ranging from Spider-Man to Batman, all the way to more modern heroes like Deadpool and members of the Authority. And these are all valid opinions. I mean, look at Batman. You know, he's uh, one that pops up a lot when I tell people I'm a Superman fan. I mean, Bruce Wayne, he's a mere mortal, holding his own uh, with Amazonian princesses, Thanagarian warriors, Martian strongmen. But you know what? Bob Kane would not have had an art factory pumping out Dark Knight Tales. And nor would we have ever seen Steve Ditko's striking image of Stanley's co-creation Spider-Man slinging across the cover of Amazing Fantasy number 15, if not for Jerry Siegel, Joe Schuster, and their creation Superman. I mean, a full 16 years before Ben, Uncle Ben would pass away, leaving a bewildered Peter Parker to ponder the relationship between power and responsibility, Pa Kent would lecture Clark on Kent on the need to use his powers to aid mankind, and Superman number 53. And three years before Captain America punched Hitler on the cover of Captain America Comics number one, Superman was fighting evil on our continent. And unlike Batman or Green Lantern or the Incredible Hulk, Superman had no template. None had come before. And Superman's impact it was immediate and clear. Within a year, the New York World's Fair would host uh, Superman Day, complete with a costumed actor and a live radio broadcast, and within two years, the Adventures of Superman radio serial would hit airwaves and remain there for 11 years. So no matter how adapted, altered, or veiled the hero is, from the capes to the trunks outside the tights, Superman did it first. And quite simply, Superman is the original template that all heroes are, superheroes are created from. But where did it begin, and I mean where did it really begin? How do you form the first superhero and the progenitor of all comic heroes to come when there's never been anything like Superman before? Surely an idea like a man from a distant planet protecting the citizens of Metropolis doesn't appear out of thin air, does it? Of course not. Uh, Superman is just a mishmash of ideas from all corners of the globe and all forms of stories and forged together against the backdrop of tyranny, tragedy, and triumphs. And the galvanizing four-color image of the man in blue tights smashing a car against the side of a bluff on the cover of Action Comics number one, it remains iconic today. 
but may find its roots nested in over 2,000 years ago in biblical lore. Lois Lane's fearless reporter in Superman's paramour. Was she a high school classmate of Superman's creators? Or did she find her origins in a male pulp character which changed genders? And how did Homer and Shakespeare help create Superman's alter ego, Clark Kent? Well, the Superman, uh, the template for building Superman, the world's greatest superhero, it really lies in many places from history to literature and even nestled deeply in that religion. Uh, to begin with, Samson from the Bible. Uh, he was he was a basically the, one of the first heroes. He's a great strength. He's a crusader for good. He has a single weakness like kryptonite. Now, admittedly, kryptonite would not be introduced to the radio show, but uh, Siegel and Schuster did note Samson and Hercules. I mean, he's a powerful, he's son of a Greek gods and fights the good fight. Um, as far as visually, I mean, uh, while in the Bible, pardon me, I just jumped my notes a little bit. Uh, when you're talking about the Bible, you can't really miss the Moses reference. I mean, after all, Moses was saved from, you know, possible doom to be sent down the river in a basket where he is rescued and becomes a champion. Not unlike a baby being sent from a planet to another, from a doomed planet to a new planet where he becomes a champion. That one's pretty obvious, but what about visually? This image of Superman with his fists on his hip and standing stoic and ready to go. Well, look no further than Douglas Fairbanks. Uh, really, that image, uh, admittedly, uh, him as Robin Hood uh, inspired Superman. Just that heroic pose, the great smile. Of course, Robin Hood also being a good guy. And how about Clark Kent? Well, if you take the names Clark and Kent, you can look no further than Clark Gable, who inspired the first name. Uh, Clark Gable of Gone with the Wind fame, and Kent Taylor, who inspired the last name. Because both Siegel and Schuster were huge movie buffs, they would of course take that. And uh, now dual identities had existed since the Scarlet Pimpernel. I mean, people, characters like Zorro, when the shadow possessed them. But their secret identities were usually men of means and wealth. And Clark Kent was a humble shell for a powerful man. Uh, if you look at Shakespeare and Henry V, you know, this is a tradition where the king disguises himself as one of the lowly soldiers to walk among the crowd. Also repeated in, in Homer's, uh, you know, Odysseus, hiding his identity on the island of Phoenicians in the Odyssey. Uh, so you go from the, you know, great, uh, powerful, rich men who become heroes by night, kind of stepping down, slumming it, to somebody who kind of does the reverse. Um, now, the look of Clark Kent, as well as his profession, may have come from a science fiction fan and newspaper man by the name of Walter Dennis, who had written to Siegel. He was also a science fiction uh, a member of uh, Siegel's Science Fiction Club. He wrote a letter who sent Siegel a letter with a photo around 1930, and Dennis is a spitting image. Now, Siegel and Schuster also mentioned that they were kind of inspired to make Clark Kent because of their own timid frames. And they wanted to imagine a world where they could just take off their glasses and just become this powerful man and prove everybody who picked on them wrong. Uh, Schuster's days working for the Toronto Daily Star would inspire Clark Kent's workplace, the Daily Star, which would later become the Daily Planet. And Toronto would actually be the model of the hero's fictional city, uh, despite you know a lot of people assuming it's New York or even Cleveland where the boys lived. It was actually Toronto, Canada. So imagine that, this American icon fighting in a great metropolitan city. It's in Canada, and which is kind of a 
indicative of what the American dream was supposed to be, this melting pot. And uh, as far as the city itself, it was named after the Fritz Lang movie, Metropolis. So that one's a pretty obvious tie-in. Now, as far as the comics and sci-fi tales at the time, Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon, and John Carter of Mars are big influences, um, especially in terms of the skin-tight designs of the sci-fi suits. John Carter himself could leap great distances on Mars due to the lower gravity. Uh, skin-tight designs of the sci-fi suits really did come into play. Uh, they combined the normal attire of the circus strongmen and help form the unique shorts outside of the tights look of Superman's costume. And it, it really should be noted that while a lot of the costume design was an amalgamation of these things, the cape itself is an entirely unique creation, the style of the cape that he wears. It didn't look like the Victorian-style capes at all, and just was the, one of the most unique aspects of it. Now, as far as one of the ma other major uh, foundations of Superman is Paramore and current wife, Lois Lane. Now, she was originally inspired by a classmate of Siegel's whom he had a crush on. Uh, her name was Lois Amster, and apparently she would break Siegel's heart. Siegel would never really get into it, stating the less said the better, but it makes sense that he would inspire a female reporter who constantly ignores and puts down the nice guy Clark Kent while looking at the powerful side of the same coin. Now, a huge influence on Lois Lane's development as a character would have been the character of Torchy Blaine, played on screen by Glenda Farrell. And oddly, the character was based on a male character stemming from books, uh, the, the McBride and Kennedy stories by Lewis Frederick Nebel. And the final and maybe most important ingredient to the character was a model that Siegel and Schuster hired through the classifieds to pose for the Lois Lane character named Joanne Carter. Now, she definitely solidified the look of Lois Lane while introducing Jerry Siegel to his future wife. And the boys were big fans of Windsor McKay and Little Nemo in, in uh, Slumberland, which would indicate a very wonderful or wonderment fantasy type of storytelling, which you can definitely see, uh, especially in the uh, strips, in the comic strips, because a lot of the early action comics issues were recut from that. If you look at Superman... Uh, the Dailies, which is a fantastic book. Normally, now you can actually find it on uh, in bargain priced around Barnes and Noble. I would highly recommend this. this. is really good reading. It's a hardback book. It's beautifully done. You can really see how the Windsor McKay influence came through on that. And uh, you know, many things went into creating Superman. These are just a few of them. Um, we'll never know exactly what all did go into it, but you know you. These are some of the things that Siegel and Schuster both acknowledged. But creating a character is not the same as selling the character. And next week, we finish up by looking at how Siegel and Schuster pushed and fought to get Superman published and how their creation was taken away from them. And it's really a, a tragic story about following your dreams. Just when you get there, remember to take care of your dreams.
And that was this week, round one, week two, where we saw Dean Cain go up against George Reeves with uh, in Metropolis Idol with 56% of your vote. And it was really close there for a while. Uh, Dean Cain does proceed to the next round where he will face off against George Reeves, which means Tom Welling has been sent packing. And uh, briefly, this contestants are from, uh, this week's contestants were from the animated field. Uh, Tim Daly, who voiced Superman and Superman in the animated series for three seasons, uh, will be the first contestant, while George Newbern, who took over the voicing duties from Daly on the Justice League and Justice League Unlimited TV shows, it takes up the second spot. Now, votes are normally open till Friday because of the lateness of this, but also because I do have to record an episode. Um, the, the time will be extended to Saturday. So I will give you till Saturday. Uh, and then we will go ahead and take down this week's voting. Now, as far as the skip week, which will uh, be next week's contestants, the voting will be open once again from Sunday to Friday. And then there will be a gap in there where we once we return, we'll get back into the regular form. So next week, I will announce the winners of this, uh, the current round one, week three, between Tim Daly and George Newbern. So just uh, be sure and visit supermanforever.com. Vote. I believe you can vote once a day. And uh, look forward to seeing you next week uh, with Metropolis Idol. And I want to wrap up this week with a couple of emails. Uh, the first email is from Scott. And he writes, Dear David, if you're looking for a topic filler, you should really check out It's Superman by Tom DeHaven. The novel came out during 06 at the same time as Superman Returns, so most people might have missed it during the epic Superman DVD craze that year. Uh, the book is like the best parts of Smallville for a more realistic 1930s Superman if Steinbeck, for some reason or another, decided to go pulp. Signed, Sincerely, Scott. And you know what, Scott? You were right. I have that penciled in. I love that book. And I remember checking that out from the library. I adore it. And I think you nailed that description right on, which gives me another challenge when it comes time to review it. I do have it set up for an episode later on in 2011 uh, because I do think it should be required reading for every Superman fan. I just have to reread it first. And uh, I do want to note that, you know, I haven't responded to these emails yet um, personally. So if you're one of these, uh, if you're Scott or Michael Bailey, who's email I'm about to read, and I haven't gotten back to you by the time you hear this episode, I do sincerely apologize. I don't intend to be rude, but that's kind of becoming the result by accident. And I did mention Michael Bailey sent an email from over at the From Crisis to Crisis podcast, and he writes, dear, uh, not dear, he writes, J. David, great job on reviewing slash covering Superman Batman number 26. I reviewed that issue for the Superman homepage, and it was one of the toughest reviews I ever had to write, so I can relate to having to talk about it. And like you, I could not remain objective, so I wanted to know how much I enjoyed and was touched by your coverage. And on a similar note, I am enjoying your coverage of the post-Infinite Crisis Superman. I really liked Up, Up, and Away when it came out, and more recently when I reread the series, and I think you're nailing it with your commentary. With such a great story to kick off the new era, I keep wondering why things came off the rails so quickly. Keep up the great work, Michael. And he uh, he notes that this post email was written by Michael Bailey, Superman apologist. And I do appreciate the feedback. I, I I'm I hopefully I'm doing a good job with this show. I do try, and some episodes have been weaker than others. Uh, 
but I hope in 2011 to build on that. So I do appreciate your encouragement. As far as Superman Batman number 26, I, I had to go over the notes twice. I'll be honest, I'm not a huge crier, but when explaining the issue to my wife, who knew nothing about it, it uh, it definitely touched me. So it was good that I kept it together long enough to to make it through that particular review. And uh, you're right, you know, Up, Up, and Awake is totally wowing me all over again. And as I mentioned earlier in the episode, we're about to get into a really weird era where you would see some really good stories, some really bad stories, and just a lot of scheduling mishaps. So I'm not sure how uh, I, you know, I kind of mentioned Adam Kubert jokingly, but uh, some of the, I don't know what the editorial staff was thinking with some of the stories we're about to be covering. But you know what? It makes for fun podcasting to rip a, a really lame story, which we will be doing quite a bit in 2011. So thank you for the email, Michael. I do appreciate the encouragement. And, um, you know, I do want to share a story that I was thinking about this week uh, because I was thinking about somebody that I saw on Facebook who's really getting harassed, another Superman fan. And you know what? Uh, I remember getting harassed in high school because comic book kids were the nerds. We kept to ourselves. We argued about things about who's the original Captain Marvel. And we just looked strange to the outside world. And we really... I mean, I'm just going to call it what it is. I took a lot of crap for being a Superman fan, a comic book fan, for wearing it, you know, on my on my person, you know, in t-shirt form or patches on hoodies. And I really felt for this person because I'd been through what this person had been going through. And, you know, at this point, I'm 33 years old looking back on it and thinking, yeah, that experience made me stronger. It made me more confident being a comic book fan and being able to just wear my my dork flag proudly but it's not always even after you get out of high school easy these things do make us stronger but only if we let them and you know what looking at you know things like my superman collection looking at things like my comics i'm proud of these things now where i was embarrassed about them when i was younger and i just want to give that person as much encouragement as i can by letting them know that it's okay to laugh it off. Uh, most of these people who are giving you a hard time, they don't see the things we see. I mean, when I look at a Superman statue, I see this wonderful... I look at it with the child's eyes, even in my 30s. Just this great hero, this great vision of hope, and it fills me with something that I don't know how to describe other than joy, and I just feel like, you know, us comic book fans are onto something that maybe the mainstream world is just now starting to see, but they don't know how to understand it. And I wanted to share a story that happened only a few years ago. And I still would have been in my 30s, so it would have been less than three years ago. But I visited a comic shop who was having two-for-one back issues on Superman books. And I'm trying to fill my some gaps in my collection. And, of course, so I ran to this location where I didn't frequent at best, some of the staff may recognize me as a that guy. Um, sure, you know, a f- barely familiar face. But I'm going through the long boxes, just doing my thing, and this couple is walking around. I see them looking at me out of the corner of my eye, and I just kind of shake it off. But I hear the woman lean over to the husband or boyfriend or whatever and whisper, It's the Superman guy. And these are complete strangers. How did they know that? And maybe... The world sees something special in us that we don't know how to define. And they're not ready to accept that, but one day they will be. 
And we just have to remain strong enough because, you know what, our heroes are great. Our Supermans, our Batmans, and just that moment where somebody said, I'm the Superman guy, changed me from really trying to downplay that aspect of myself to basically saying, hell yeah, I'm the Superman guy. And that's just the lesson I want everybody to take from that. You know what? You can be the Superman guy. You can be the Batman guy. And if they don't understand it, it's their problem. So with that, I do kind of want to wrap up this episode and just wish everybody a happy holiday, a safe holiday. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. Superman may be invulnerable, but we are not in the real world. So I hope you have a wonderful holiday. I will see you next week. Uh, Be sure and leave me a review at iTunes. You can drop me an email at mail at supermanforever.com. You can always call the message line at 703-95-SUPER, which is 703-957-8737. You can find me on Twitter at Superman4Ever.com. And uh, check out the show notes. Um, I didn't put a secret code in this week. I haven't had a lot of response on that. So I'm going to go ahead and discontinue that. If you did decipher the codes from the last few weeks, I will still honor those. So you'll be, you can still be put in the running for 20 Superman comic books. Just remember to, if you have gaps, uh, give me several of the issues you're missing, and I'll be sure and try to get those and make those a priority. So I will see you next week when the never-ending battle continues. Superman and all related characters are copyright DC Comics and Warner Brothers. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster.